The Apostle Paul writes, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, note, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The last time we looked at the verses before these in verses 5 through 11, in which Christ's humility and is portrayed and his exaltation is celebrated... Christ, though in the form of God, in the highest position of glory, power, and authority, did not see this highest position in the universe as something to be exercised for his own advantage. But rather, he emptied himself or made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave which means that he became human. He took on all of our frailties, our limitations, and entered into our suffering. So thorough was his humility that he became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And so God has exalted him And God has given him the name Lord, Lord of all. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To live in oneness of spirit and purpose, as Philippians calls us, we must have this same mind, which is the mind of Christ Jesus, which is why Paul digs into and portrays Jesus' humiliation, his self-emptying, and his exaltation. Because we are to have the same mind or the same mindset. We are to give ourselves over to Christ's mind or attitude. Now, if you came out of that beginning to think and to evaluate your life and say, How do I do that? What are the first steps I take? First of all, let me say that may be different in a lot of ways for each one of us. Where the rubber really hits the road is when it's deciding whose turn it is to do the dishes or take out the garbage or what we're going to do with our tax return, if you got a return, or so on and so forth. That's where self-emptying And having the mind of Christ on a daily basis really comes out. But Paul is ready for the question. Well, how do we do this? How do we as a a community of faith have the mind of Christ? 
Paul knew you were going to go there. First, let us note this word, therefore. Therefore, verse 12. The word therefore connects all of these thoughts to the mind of Christ, which is displayed in his humility and exaltation. They form the basis for all of these instructions. If every knee will bow, and if every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on that day, then we should all live in light of that event. We should all live according to the knowledge that we will all, every one of us, give an account to him. And if Christ emptied himself and humbled himself in obedience to death, all the way to death on a cross, but is then exalted in glory and vindicated before the entire universe to be Lord of all, then we can live with that mind, the mind of Christ, confident that emptying ourselves, humbling ourselves, and becoming obedient even to death will lead to our deliverance and vindication on that day. It's also important to see that this connection, the therefore, keeps these verses in the context of oneness in the church. Paul is not suddenly switching to you as a Christian or a believer, now this is how you're, how you're to live. He's speaking to the church and the need for the church to be one in spirit and purpose, to stand firm as one. He's still in that context. He's still thinking in those terms. Now that doesn't take away individual responsibility, individual humbling. But it does say that we're to do this together. It keeps these verses in the context of unity and oneness. Now, Paul gives us two commands then that issue from Christ's humility and exaltation. These two commands provide two immediate ways of putting the mind of Christ to work. Number one, work out your own salvation. And number two, do all things without grumbling and complaining or disputing. The rest of the rich content of these verses hangs on one or the other of these commands. So first, work out your salvation, verse 12. Work out your salvation. Now, the words work out mean to bring about or produce or even create. Paul uses the term in several other places. For example, in Romans 5.3, he says, suffering produces endurance. That word produces is the same word, work out. Suffering works out endurance. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Those words, is preparing, is the same word. This light momentary affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory or is creating for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So here Paul is saying, work out, produce your salvation. 
And by salvation, he means final and full salvation. We know that salvation is not just a one-time act in which God has declared us right and just and forgiven of sin. We know that salvation includes a process of being made holy or conformed to the image of Christ. And we know that salvation has a final sense in which God finally delivers us from sin altogether and transforms us completely. In fact, what's described in verses 9 through 11 here in chapter 2 is exactly that. Where every knee bows and every tongue confesses. That's the time when everybody, everyone who has followed Jesus by faith, who has been saved, declared right, conformed to his image, is finally delivered from the very presence of sin. When Paul says here, work out your salvation, he's saying the whole thing. He's saying you participate from the point in which God, by grace through your faith, declares you right and just, his, forgiven and cleansed, to the point where you are finally delivered once and for all from the presence of sin that we are to participate and work in that. That's the salvation he's talking about. It's deliverance. It's the whole package. Ultimate deliverance from judgment as the result of a present transformation. Now, how is it? This is the question, right? How is it that Paul can call us to work out our own salvation? Even in Philippians, he has said, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Chapter one, verse six. He has already said in Philippians, your salvation is from God. Chapter one, verse 28. And we know that our salvation is by God's grace. It is God's working by his own power. And there isn't any amount of work we can do. There is no intensity of effort that we can expend that could achieve forgiveness, that could achieve a right standing before God. God saves us by grace through faith. And we know this from these verses that we look at very often, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works. So we know the text here in Philippians 2 is not saying, do good things to acquire your salvation. God has done his part to make it available, now it's up to you to earn it. You have been given salvation. Now staying with it is totally on you. It's not saying either of those things. It's not saying you've got to perform to acquire it because God's done his part. And it's not saying God has given it to you. Now you have to somehow work and achieve keeping it. No, this is one of those places in the Bible where we are called upon to cooperate with God's divine grace in our lives, to continue in the faith, to persevere, to endure, here to work out, to work out the transforming work God is doing. And the next verse will make this even clearer. So to work out our salvation means we must put faith into action. James said it, right? For faith apart from works is dead. 
James 2.26. We are to engage in our own salvation in such a way that we cooperate. You are to engage in God's work in your life in such a way that you are cooperating with God's work, bringing your will and behavior into line with his will. And remember, this command is given in the context of Paul pleading for the church to be one in spirit and purpose. So working out our own salvation is only accomplished, watch, in relationship with one another. It is a command to the church, not just the Christian. Like I said, it doesn't absolve individual working as if somehow the individual is removed from the corporate body or that the corporate body isn't made up of individuals, Christians, but that working out our salvation is done in community, not in isolation. That it is done in harmony and not division. Which is why the mind of Christ, which is described and portrayed in verses 5 through 11, is the necessary foundation for such a monumental endeavor. Now, Paul gives us here four descriptions in verses 12 and 13 surrounding this command to work out our salvation. These descriptions illuminate what this working out is. First of all, working out our salvation is a continued obedience. It is a continued obedience. Look again at verse 12. As you have always obeyed, so now. The word obeyed connects us back to chapter 2, verse 8, where Christ became obedient to the point of death. Having emptied himself and having taken the form of a servant, that is, taking on humanity, being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself in obedience to God the Father. And even Jesus himself said, I do not act on my own, I do what the Father shows me. Jesus tempted in the wilderness three times by Satan after being out there for 40 days and 40 nights. Every temptation was a deceitful act to get the Messiah, the God-man, to act independently of his father, to act on his own will, his own schedule. And every time Jesus resisted. Paul is referring then for the Philippians to their initial acceptance of the gospel and how they have conformed their lives to it. And that's how Paul measures obedience is adherence to the gospel. Obedience is defined by relationship to Christ, knowing him, being like him, and serving him. Obedience, that word trips us up, I think because in our culture, our word obedience so often refers to an external checking off the boxes, and we don't like that. And it makes sense, because we know the heart has to be in it. 
The Christian life is not just jumping through a bunch of hoop, go, uh, hoops, going through a bunch of motions. But when we hear the word obedience, we think, oh, that's just, I do it because I'm told to do it. Doesn't necessarily have anything to do with my heart. But that's not the, the biblical view of obedience. Obedience has to do with the whole heart. The Philippians' obedience showed that they have already joined Christ's obedience and have already acknowledged him as Lord and that they're living that way. So we can work out our salvation only if we have obeyed the gospel by humbling ourselves and bowing the knee and confessing with our tongue that Jesus is Lord. Working out our salvation is to continue on that path of humility and worship of Christ. So working out our salvation is a continued obedience. It is, it is moving on in the, the work of the gospel. Secondly, working out our salvation is a mark of spiritual progress. It's a mark of spiritual progress. Paul says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, here's what I mean. Paul points out his absence a number of times in the letter and how his absence affects his relationship with the Philippians and how it affects their well-being. For example, in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul says that even though I'm separated from you, uh, I have a continued affection for you. I love you and I, and I yearn for you, he says. Chapter 1, verses 22 and 25, Paul is wrestling through in his own mind because he's in prison and there's the possibility that he might die, that he might be executed. And as he's wrestling through it, which would I prefer? Well, it's better to go on and be with Christ, but convinced that it is more necessary for your faith, I'm convinced that I'll remain that I'm going to end up living through this and being exonerated and let out of prison. But he wrestles with this possible martyrdom, but their good is at stake. And he has to think about the fact that he hasn't been with them, he's absent from them. Chapter 1, verse 27, he tells them that standing firm in one spirit is crucial in his absence. Chapter 2, following here in chapter 2, verse 19, this is why it's so important to him to send Timothy. He needs a report about them because he can't see them and know how they're doing. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I don't mind having to write to you and repeat the same things to you over and over and over because it's a safeguard for you. And at the end of the letter in chapter 419, he is confident that even though he's not there, God is faithful and will supply their needs even in his absence, Paul's absence. So Paul's concern here then is that they move past needing Paul's presence to continue in spiritual progress. I take this as very parental of Paul. Isn't this the goal of parents, for those of you who are parents, isn't this what we want for our children? 
We don't just correct our children for the sake of correcting them. We correct them for the sake of training them. And the goal of training them is so that when we're not there, and as they get older and they're on their own, they will do what's right and know what's right and wrong. That they will act on their own. How rewarding is it as a parent to have dropped your kid off at somebody else's house or maybe them being away at school or whatever it is to get a report that they were respectful, they showed kindness. Oh, it isn't just a waste. They do listen. That's, what, that's the goal of parenting. We want our children to become independent adults who know right from wrong and do what's right. That's training. And this is what Paul, I understand, is getting at. He's saying, when I'm there, you have learned to obey. You have displayed faithfulness. But how much more important it is that when I'm not there, that you continue. Paul is saying, I want you and your brother and your sister to get along when I'm not in the room. I want you to know how to work things out. It's crucial that you work out your salvation even when I'm absent. So doing that is a mark of spiritual progress, maturity, growing up spiritually. Thirdly, working out our salvation must be with fear and trembling. Must be with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These are words that are used to describe how people respond in the presence of God. There is awe. And there is fear and trembling because there is exposure. There is a revealing of a person's moral condition when they are in the presence of God that is inescapable. Whether they love God, hate God, believe in God, doesn't matter. When they're in his presence, there is a fear and a trembling because our moral condition is exposed. You can see this when Moses is before the burning bush. You can see this when Isaiah sees the king on his throne in the temple. You can see this when the Apostle John sees the risen and glorified Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. In every case, everybody falls on their face in the presence of God with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling was also Paul's approach to preaching the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, Paul says, I came, I preached with fear and trembling. Why? Because of the awesome responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. That the responsibility was so weighty that he felt he was in the very presence of God in being faithful to his calling as an apostle and preaching the gospel. And so he preaches it with fear and trembling. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we work out our salvation in the presence of God. Coram Deo, before his face. And we anticipate the day of Christ. 
when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That will be fear and trembling. And what the Christian and the church realizes as we work out our own salvation is that we are already in the presence of God. He is already here. Revelation chapter 1 The image of Jesus moving through the candle stands. Each of the candle stands is one of the churches. And Jesus is looking into them and he's inspecting his churches. Jesus doesn't just look and inspect the church universal. Jesus looks at every local church body. Those letters written in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation were to specific church bodies. Now, they were representative, okay? But Jesus is still looking at each individual church. He is Lord of his churches. We are in his presence. So working out our salvation together in the presence of God will be done with the humility that comes with fearing God. Fourth description, we are to work out our salvation because it is God who works in us. It is God who works in us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here, we come full circle in a sense, don't we? In verse 13, he gives us the reason for working out our salvation. And it is not because it depends on us. It is not even because we have some equal part to play. But because it is God who works in you. He is at work. And his work, watch, his work is the cause. Our working is the effect. His work causes our participation. But he works at a deeper level than just our work, doesn't he? Because he works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God is the one at work in your desires and your decisions so that your will takes on his will and determines your work that pleases him. Now, how does that happen? I don't know. That's why we call it a paradox. God is sovereign and divine and he is working out his will in your life. You are called to participate. That's what's going on. But instead of that being a reason... God's working in you to will and to work. Instead of that being a reason to let go and let God, Paul says it is precisely the incentive for you and for me and for us to work, to participate, to take ourselves to task, to deny ourselves, to humble ourselves. Let me show you a couple of other places where this same paradox pops up. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Got it. Right? I, get, I don't get to come before God and bring him anything and say, Here, here's my part. I get a little bit of credit. I get a little credit for believing. No, God enables you to believe. God regenerates your heart and brings it to life to enable you to exercise faith, to believe the gospel message which will save you. You don't even get that. I don't even get that. It's not by work, nothing. That's why those who come to Christ and those who, be, who are saved and come in have to let go of everything. No pride, no ego, no claim. But we don't talk about verse 10 very often. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's Paul saying? Paul isn't even just saying that if you get saved, you will produce good works. God is saying that, I mean, Paul is saying that before God saved you by his grace, part of his act in saving you was his divine purpose that he has ordained for you as his child to walk in good works. It's a package and you don't get part of it. You don't walk in good works to earn the salvation that's given you by grace and you don't get to accept grace And be saved without following through on the ordained, prepared beforehand, good works that God has purposed that you walk in. It comes all together. And he ordains the whole thing. He saves by grace. And he is in his grace, his sovereign grace, he has prepared good works beforehand that you walk in them. And if you have been saved by grace, you will and are walking in them because he's already prepared them. Let's look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This is not only Paul. Paul does not only look at this. We could go on. We could look at James. James chapter 2 in particular. But 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Who has granted to us all things? He has. Granted, given. Who has called us? We didn't call ourselves. He called us. And when he called us, we came to his own glory and excellence, and by which that calling he has granted to us. Who has granted to us? He has. He has given us his precious and very great promises. We didn't earn them. We didn't deserve them. We didn't merit them. He's granted them. 
And as a result of that, we have become partakers of the divine nature and escaped corruption. Verse 5, for this very reason, relax, take it easy, do whatever you want, live however you want to. You don't even have to be careful. He's given it all. He's granted it all. He's called you. No, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. And then he goes on. Knowledge, self-control, and so on. And he names all of these virtues that form this chain. And then he gives some warnings. If you're not doing this, bad. It's judgment. And he concludes in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Whoa, time out. Election. What do you mean? What's the Calvinist view of election? What's the reformed doctrine of election? Total depravity, right? So on and so forth. Irresistible grace. God has elected you. Wait a second. If God has elected me, what say do I have in it? What choice do I have in it? It's a logical question. It is a nonsensical question when it comes to what God has revealed. Because even though God's elective purposes are at work in our lives... We are to make every effort to supplement. We are to be all the more diligent to confirm that calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's what Paul's saying in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation. So election, God's sovereign work in my heart to give me life, to enable me to believe him, to trust him, his elective work then to justify me and to forgive me, for which I can take no credit, is all the more reason to combat sin, not give in to it. To know that there are people who don't know Christ, who don't believe the gospel, whether they're hearing me preach or they're at the grocery store or they're at school or wherever it is, the fact that I know that God saves sovereignly and that whomever God chooses will respond to his grace is not a reason to not say anything about the gospel. God's purposes in election are all the more reason to share the gospel. Because for those whom will respond, God's gospel is invincible. The fact that God exercises sovereign grace over all of the circumstances in your life and my life are all the more reason to pray. Scott hit on this in Daniel chapter 9 a few weeks ago. Well, he's talking about God already set 70 years. And Daniel's praying. Daniel is moved to pray because he knows the time is set. Daniel says, oh good, the time is set. We're headed out of, out of Babylon. 
Daniel sees the fact that God has sovereignly promised this, and Daniel believes it, as a reason to come before God and beg for it and pray. So work out what God works in. That's what Paul's saying. Work out what God works in. Second command. So that's the first one. Work out your salvation. Secondly, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In every dimension of life, in every role, every relationship, every circumstance, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Grumbling means whispering complaints, hatching malicious designs in secret. Disputing means arguing, quarreling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. These words echo the downfall of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Lord said, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. These scenes take place in Numbers chapter 14 and other places. The portions I read from Numbers 14. That was the cycle for Israel, wasn't it? They complain, they would unbelieve, disbelieve, not trust God. They would complain and grumble against him and his choices, even a point of saying, why'd you lead us out here in the wilderness? We're just all going to die. You're making us pray. Our wives and children are at risk out here. We should have just stayed in Egypt. And in fact, guys, let's just elect a new leader who will take us back to Egypt. And God says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'll wipe you all out. And Moses, I'm going to start again with you. And I can still keep all of my promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob by wiping out all of these people except you, Moses, and starting all over again. Doesn't ruin the plan. Doesn't thwart salvation. Nothing. It's Moses who intervenes and says, no, don't do that. It's funny because Moses at different times intervenes. And other times he goes, why did you give me these people? Why did you put these people? Why did you call me in here? And other times God says, okay, you got it. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, no, count me. Look at me. Don't, if, you do, if you wipe them out, wipe me out too. That was grumbling and complaining. And Paul says here, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He's not just talking about being discontent with your salary or, you know, I'm always talking to my kids about being content with what mom and dad have put on the table. He's not talking about just that complaint. Those are smaller, uh, more minute expressions of this same kind of grumbling and rebellion, though. But he's not just talking about a discontent. He's talking about a, a complaining or a grumbling against one another. That's what I would understand Paul to be talking about. Now, he doesn't say how the Philippians' grumbling resembles the Israelites. Could it be that some in the Philippian church are grumbling against their leaders in the church? Could be. Maybe some things in the text that say that. Could it be they're complaining against Paul, grumbling against Paul, as though maybe it's Paul's fault they're suffering? Paul recognizes 
that they are suffering, acknowledges that to them. I know you're suffering. You're fighting the same fight I'm fighting. You're suffering for the gospel just as I am. Maybe, but I, I really think it's more general. I think he's talking about grumbling against each other, disputing with one another. One person becomes put out with another and creates a camp. It's not that there are never going to be disagreements or that every disagreement in and of itself is wrong. But whatever differences there are among us, whatever disagreements we may have, whatever misunderstandings may occur, they are to be resolved without grumbling and complaining or disputing. Honesty and humility and patience are necessary. Grumbling and self-interest have no place. Now, These verses give us two goals for not grumbling against each other, for not disputing with one another. Two goals. We are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. First, to maintain our identity. To maintain our identity as the children of God. Look at verse 15. That, this is a reason, this is the goal that we're going for. So that we may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. There's a, there's a rhythm to these three terms, blameless, innocent, and without blemish. They also, without blame, without flaw, without blemish. No blame, no flaw, no blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. His point is the contrast between the children of God and a crooked and twisted generation. So, whereas the world is treacherous and warped by grumbling against each other and disputing with one another, we, the children of God, are to be untainted by that kind of negativism. And our world does, don't they? In fact, we find it entertaining. This is the basis for reality TV, for the most part, is that we get to sit in our living rooms and watch other people grumble and complain and dispute. They're all living in a house together, but when you get them in a private interview, right, and they're kind of talking to John, but you get them in a private interview... And then they just bash somebody. Or they're all on an island. Or they're all after the same bachelor. Or whatever it is. It's entertainment. And it's big money. We, the children of God, are to be untainted by that kind of negativism. If not, we lose our distinction in the world. Among whom... We shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. You shine as lights in the world or stars. And some of your versions, depending on what your version, may have it translated that way. You shine like stars in the world or stars in the cosmos, in the universe. We are distinct... Because we don't blend in with the empty blackness of a culture given over to grumbling and disputing. 
and because we hold fast to the word of life. That is, we hold fast to the gospel, the word that brings life, that is life. We hold fast to it. We don't surrender the truth of the gospel that gives life because the crooked and twisted generation doesn't like being told it's crooked and twisted or because they don't want to be governed by the word of life because our holding fast to it pricks their consciences. We are to hold fast to it. When the church fails to hold fast to the word of life, we cease to become the church. And our country and our cities are filled with church buildings that do not hold fast to the word of life, filled with people or not so filled with people who do not hold fast to the word of life. They have slowly, piece by piece, traded away the gospel for compromise because a crooked and twisted generation doesn't like the message of the word of life. And the upshot for us is we cannot fulfill our mission in the world. We cannot be on mission. We cannot fulfill our mission in the world to be the gospel to the inky blackness as stars shining while we are grumbling and disputing. So we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing to maintain our identity as the people of God in the world, which is shining like stars in the dark sky. Uh, So that's the first goal. The second goal is to honor the sacrifices of others on behalf of our faith. Look what Paul says, verse 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That's how Paul sees his ministry and his calling. It's running, labor. And he knows that when he stands before Christ on the day of Christ, he will be rewarded and judged according to how he ran and how he labored. And when he gets there, despite that he might be rewarded, he wants to look over at what he labored and ran for and see them. It's the church, or the church is us. Paul sees their working out their salvation, their no grumbling or disputing as the fulfillment of his mission. If they don't work out their salvation, and if they don't, or if they continue to grumble and dispute, his mission has failed. That's how he sees it. He sees as his labor and his running as in vain. And on the day of Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They're making it. Their worship of Christ will vindicate his labor. Is running. 
And now Paul offers one of the most beautiful portraits of being expendable for the gospel. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. A drink offering, or sometimes called a libation, was a cup of wine that was poured out on the altar or maybe out on the ground as a form of sacrifice. And it was a a sacrifice, a drink offering, it was an offering that was intended to complete or add to, kind of of be like we would think of the the crowning or the, the whipped cream on the thing, right? Complete another sacrifice. So as one sacrifice is being offered, whether it's a bull or a goat or a lamb or whatever it is, it's being offered and it's being consumed on the altar. The drink offering would be poured out with it or on it or with it. It's the picture. To complete that sacrifice. Paul sees his life as a drink sacrifice that is being poured out. It is being expended for the safety and the progress of the Philippians' faith. Their faith is the sacrifice or the offering. Do you see that? His life is the cup that is poured out to complete it. That's the imagery that Paul's using. And Paul says, it gives me joy. It brings me the greatest satisfaction to be spent, to be expended, to be stretched, to be emptied out for the sake of your faith. And I think what Paul is looking at is he's looking at the pouring out as the labor and the running, the suffering that he endures. And at some point, it will be completely poured out. It will be expended, his death, for the sake of the gospel, his own martyrdom. And Paul is looking at that possibility in in prison right now. And though he's confident, he's worked out, your faith, for the sake of your faith, it's more necessary that I not be executed and I'm going to be freed. Paul still sees all of this as him being poured out. And at some point, the last drop will fall and he will die for the sake of the gospel. And he doesn't know when that is, but he sees his life as being expended and poured out. That is what looking out for the interests of others looks like. And Paul, you notice, doesn't do it with, I'm going to sacrifice. This is a sacrifice. It's joy. Paul does it with joy. And his goal is this, do all things without grumbling and disputing So that my running, my labor is not in vain on that last day, on the day of Christ. And I am willing, joyfully, happily willing that my life be poured out and be expended 
for you to make that progress. Now, I believe that this is a word to those of us who lead in the church, to the elders. This is what ministry ought to be like for us. This is how we must see it. As our lives being poured out and accepting that with joy, I do not think that someone can lead in the church, elder, pastor, whether they're receiving their livelihood from the church or not. They cannot lead and shepherd in the church without seeing it this way. And I believe that men who leave the ministry very often do so because they are being asked to be poured out like a drink offering and they have forgotten that's what it means. That their lives are to be expended for the sake of the faith of God's people. There's also a word to the church here. And that is, it is a cause for joy that your faith and my faith, our faith, is worth such a sacrifice by Paul or other leaders and shepherds in our lives. That we should rejoice in their joy, Paul's joy, to expend his life because the gospel is worth it, because our faith is worth it. And we cannot do that We cannot enter into that joy of being poured out like a drink offering and glad for those who are being poured out like drink offerings who are willing to when we grumble and dispute. The goal of doing all things, one of the goals here, of doing all things without grumbling or disputing is to really is to participate in the joy of being expended for the gospel. How's that? Because you can't do that if you're grumbling and disputing. So, of all of the things then that we might look, we look at verses five through 11 and we see the emptying, the self-emptying of Christ and we see his exaltation and Paul says, have this mind that, was your, that is yours in Christ Jesus, if we're going to appropriate, if we're going to have that mind of all the th- things we could pursue, of all the ways we could apply it, Paul brings us to two specific ways of doing it. Working out our own salvation and doing all things without grumbling and complaining. 